Ephesians 4, and we're, we're going to look at 1 through 16, but the majority of our focus will be on 7 through 16. Let me pray one more time. Lord, we, we come before you together, united, seeking the truth of your word. And we ask that you plant it down deep in us. Cause the light of your word to shine forth. Pull back the curtains. Remove the scales from our eyes. Soften our hearts. By the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So, last week we began a month-long series considering our church covenant. And yes, Ozarks Bible Church has a church covenant. And it has since its beginning, some five years ago. Um, And that's why we want to know about it. That's why we want to look at it. But in knowing about the church covenant, we also want to understand why it's necessary, why it's helpful, what it says, what it helps. Um, We practice here at Ozarks Bible Church uh, the, the term covenant church membership, which means... And our new members class, who's in there, they're in their second week this week. They, we looked at this a little bit closer. This means that when you uh, join Ozark's Bible Church, you join in commitment to God, this church, God's kingdom, and of course, all of the members that have covenanted with you to strive to be a biblical member. Uh, we used the illustration of a Wedding vows last week, while they're not similar, the point remains that your vows aren't found in Scripture, but the themes of your vows most certainly are. The covenant has no authority. I'll admit it. It's a piece of paper with words on it. It points back to the true authority, the Word of God. Our covenant is built... On pointing us back to what the Bible says we ought to be as a local body. And that's why when you you can't go to your church covenant and find answers. Because it's written very vaguely in general for the sense of the details are in the Bible. Okay? Um, So as a way of reminder or refreshment, very quickly, we looked at a practical definition and a short summary of our covenant. So practically, our covenant is a commitment that defines Ozarks Bible Church. It separates us in our our local union with everybody else that might be joining together this morning, like down the road, that way, down the road, that way. You're Ozarks Bible Church because you've committed, covenanted to one another, and we look to um, hold that commitment. Our, our covenanting together defines who we are as Ozarks Bible Church. It's not the building, and honestly, it's not all the people who come in. Ozarks Bible Church are the people who have covenanted together for the sake of Christ, his kingdom, this assembly, and one another's souls. So the, if you look on the back of your bulletin, the covenant is there in its totality. Um But here's a summary, one phrase per paragraph. As professing believers of Jesus Christ, we solemnly and joyfully commit to one another as the body of Christ. And that was sort of our theme last week. Second paragraph, to strive to walk together in the unity of love for the advancement of this church. That'll be our topic this week. Number three, for the advancement of the kingdom of our Savior next week. And then finally, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Our desire in practicing covenant 
church membership. The reason why we employ it is because it is to help us in our desire to glorify Christ, purify the church, and sanctify the saints. And we looked at Ephesians 4 last week. Uh, well, we looked at Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, but we found ourselves in 4, and we noticed these two realities in those first four chapters of Ephesians 4. Number one, God saves sinners to be a part of his body. God brings sinners out and joins them to the body of Christ. And he does this so that they may grow together. That they might grow together into Christ the head. Why? For the purpose of exalting Christ and making him known. Or exalting God and making him known. That's what we saw in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4 last week. And so what? before we move on, there's one thing we have to remember. And that's God's redemptive plan, right? Which started where? Before the foundations of the world. But it's first manifested in Genesis 3. In the garden. God's redemptive plan is bigger than our individual salvation. We have to we have to know that. Christianity has become very individualistic. Sylvia says I make up words when I'm up here. I don't I think that's a real word. Um, Christianity today um, very much can be viewed in this way. It's like being saved from the drown from drowning at a local pool. Like you're saved, right? You're you're safe. You're not dead. But then you just go home and live your life, right? You, that's it. You've just been saved from death. It's so much more than that. Our individual salvation is not the sole purpose of, of Christianity. I was reading a, a, a sermon from Charles Spurgeon this week, and he, I think it was on Ephesians 4, and he entitled a thing called Christian Selfishness. Christian Selfishness. And he, this is what he says. Oh, for the grace to be unselfish. There is such a thing as Christian selfishness. And of all the evil things in the world, it is the most unchristian. When the first and the last concern of a man is his own salvation, his own comfort, his own advancement, his own edification, and nothing besides, he needs to be saved from such a selfish spirit as that. So first and foremost, as we looked at last week, and we see at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, that the ultimate end for anyone to be saved is the boast and glory of God and Jesus Christ. Ultimately. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. So when God saves us, he saves us and brings us in. Into the body of Christ. Into a covenant community. Into members of his body. And he does so that we may grow together in Christ. Into Christ who is the head. In order to exalt the head and make him known. And our church covenant outlines what that looks like basically. And the three paragraphs over the next three weeks sort of is going to put meat on these bones. Um, but just enough to, to, to guide us and to lead us back into the scriptures to see what are. And here's what I want you to understand. To be a member of the body of Christ comes with duty and responsibility. Duty and responsibility. Just in the same way, just in the same way. Your arm has a duty and responsibility. Your nose has a duty and responsibility. But it's not for itself, right? It's for the body, for the head. So, uh, again, I've already outlined, we've got three more 
paragraphs left, three more weeks left, and this week we're focusing on paragraph two, walking together, and this is straight out of paragraph two, walking together in the unity of love for the advancement of his church. And I think Ephesians 4 pairs with that tremendously. And so this week, we're not going to have an overview of Ephesians 4, but we're going to walk verse by verse in Ephesians 4, and we're going to pull out the details of how God does this. How does he bring unity to people like us? How does he operate this? Ephesians 4 gives us what we're going to see, five ingredients Five ingredients a local church needs in order to fulfill their calling of exalting God and making him known. Notice I didn't say making you feel better on Sunday at 1230 or whatever. The ultimate purpose of us, Ozarks Bible Church, is the exaltation of the triune God and making him known. Seeking to set forth Christ. Here's those five ingredients we'll see as we walk through these verses. Grace, a diversity of gifts, leadership, truth, and love. I'll, I'll let you know when we get to each one. And when we get to verse 16, we're going to see what comes out of the oven, basically. What these five ingredients produce in a local church. Alright, so let's begin. Ephesians 1. Uh, just a few a few thoughts before we get to 7, which is really the meat of what we have to look at. Start at 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if you have looked at our covenant, specifically paragraph 2, you're already going to see similar language. Specifically, walk together in the unity of love. Now, to fulfill your calling, your individual calling as a Christian, you must find yourself in the midst of the church. There's no other way around it. There's no other way to do it. An individual Christian to fulfill, to be obedient to the scriptures must find themselves in the midst of the body of Christ. Because you cut off an arm, what happens to the arm? It's dead. But what does that do to the rest of the body? Right? You cut off a member of your body. That's not good for the body and it's not good for the members. That's why this analogy that Paul uses is so good. The body, right? Body, members. Your body has members and all your members are active and needed to make the body work properly. Okay? This analogy is perfect. Christianity has always been and always will be a religion of community. I don't take the word religion wrong. I mean it in the truest sense. Christianity has always been and always will be a religion of community. Um, Verse 4 to 6 gives a great statement on unity. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Praise God. It's a great reminder. You memorize verses 4, 5, and 6. So when you're living life and you start to feel the tension, the stirring of strife or division, remember these three verses. Because we are all one. Joined in the Lord Jesus. And here's what happens. No disagreement, no argument, no difference of opinion can overcome our unity in Christ. None. Nothing. Now, here we get to verse 7. But grace. Our first ingredient necessary for a local church to fulfill their calling. Now, look back at verse 2. 
and see the words with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Good luck with that. What other words do we see there? Unity and peace. No way. No way a bunch of sinful people like us can come together in these ways. We need grace. We need the undeserved favor of God. Why? It's because humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, unity and peace aren't natural to you and me at all. We have the same nature of Cain, the brother killer. We have the same nature as Achan, who was so much more concerned about himself. It didn't matter what happened to Israel. He just wanted those shiny things for himself. Or we might, no we are, we do have the deceitful nature like Rebecca and Jacob. Planning and scheming to steal the birthright of Esau. And we could go on and on. In scripture and even out of scripture. To see the examples of our nature that go against humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Our nature is so self-focused. It's And so what do we need? We need the gracious act of God. Because apart from his acting for us on our behalf and doing something to us, we cannot have these things. We cannot do these things. We're hopeless in our unity and peace. God has to act towards us as sinners. And the only way God can act towards us, if it's not in judgment, is grace. And so what has he done in his grace? Well, we know... Question 32 of our catechism, that it was an act of grace that he justifies us, right? Pardons our sin. Uh, accounts Christ's righteousness to us. That was an act of grace. But he's gone beyond that because he's gracious. He's gone beyond that and he's given us something necessary that makes us able to achieve peace and unity. What has he given us? His spirit. He's given us his spirit for its own. What's the fruit of the spirit? I mean, you know, the things that we need for unity and peace. This is also noted in paragraph two of our church covenant. We shall strive to walk together. No, no, no. We shall strive by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in the unity of love. What grace, what marvelous, gracious, great grace. God dwells in us in order that he might, he might do in us what he commands us to do. But this great grace through the Spirit has given us more than just these capabilities like the fruit of the Spirit of love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. He has given us gifts to operate among one another. Verse 7 Let's read the whole verse. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. This is the second ingredient. Diversity of gifts. And you're thinking, okay, what are these gifts? Well, I'm going to let Paul explain it in Romans 12. Go to Romans 12 with me, verses 4 through 8. Romans 12, 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Diversity, right? So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Unity. And individual members one of another. Having gifts that differ. Diversity. According to what? To the grace given to us. 
Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God has given us not just the Spirit for these fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5, but He's given us gifts for the sake of acting, functioning, working within the body of Christ. Just like your nose has a function. Just like your arm and your eyes and so on. All together doing different things, but for one purpose. For the sake of the head. Working properly. How brilliant, how infinitely wise is God that he finds unity in diversity? Think about that. Think about the outcome of diversity in human terms. Whew. Now, we all know that we want diversity and we see the world's attempt at it, but they even get that wrong. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. God brings unity to the body of Christ through our diversity. Now, there's only one thing I want to point out in Romans 12, and that is these four little words. Let us use them. Use your gifts. Use your gifts within the local assembly because they are yours from Christ by the Spirit. Be a good steward of how God has gifted you. And you might be, I don't know what my gift is. Well, let's talk about it. Go look at this list. There's other lists throughout the scriptures of the New Testament. Generosity. Exhortation, teaching, zeal. You are gifted. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have been gifted to operate in a certain way in the body of Christ. All right, let's move forward. So verse 8, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 68, I believe, uh, in reference to Christ giving gifts. He says, uh, therefore it says, Quote, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, verse 9 and 10 is Paul interrupting himself. Okay? You know, when you hear me, especially on a Sunday evening and we're a little less scripted and I get going on a rabbit trail because of something and a teaching and a doctrine has led me here. And then we have to make our way back to where we were. This is what's happened in verses um, 9 and 10. Paul quotes scripture and he's like, oh, you know, about that and then he gives his he gives his commentary in 9 and 10 and it says in saying he ascended jesus what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things so here's what we have we could spend quite a bit of time on that but here's just what i want to tell you he he is explaining the dissension and ascension of Jesus, the Son of God. The movement of the Son of God, who was at the right hand and then in his humiliation descended and took on flesh, the form of a servant, and then and then took uh, becoming... Uh, yeah, you know the thing. Uh, Philippians 2. But then after his death, his resurrection, he ascended, he ascended back to the throne. The right hand of the throne of God. And that's what Paul is basically saying. Jesus is God, y'all. Alright? So, but then he gets... He, he He's like, okay, I gotta get back on my track. In verse 11, he gets back on track in reference to verse 7. And so, let's read verse 7 and then jump down to 11 so we can see his flow here. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts... Let's go ahead and read 8 too because that's still helpful. Therefore, he says in quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11. 
What did he give? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, let's stop there. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Part of the gifts that he gave to men and the church were the men who would lead the church from the apostles down to the pastors. This is the third ingredient a church needs if it is to uh, be faithful to its call of exalting Christ and making him known. So now we have grace, diversity of gifts, and leadership. And we typically speak of these, this list of, 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 of men as offices of the church. And I don't want to walk through them. We don't have time for that. But here's what I want you to stop and think for a moment. What is the common thread between these, what is it, four? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd, shepherds and teachers? That's one. So what's the common thread that runs between the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd and teachers? What do they have in common? What's their common denominator? The ministry of the word of God. The proclamation of the gospel. This is their common, uh, their commonality. I just made up a word. Um, or said it wrong or something. Why is that so important? Why is the ministry of the word as we see it in Acts 6, and we, we'll go, we won't go there. Why is the ministry of the word so important? Well, it's because the word carries the power of sanctification. It carries the, the renewal of the mind. It carries the power for salvation. When we say it's the when we say the word or the word of God, again, you have to understand what makes the word so outstanding is its origin, God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is here this, this is very helpful, Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Hang on to that one. We'll come back to it. The word of God is the sword of the spirit with which we go to battle against Satan and his schemes. The word of God reveals to us the will of God, the reality of your sin, and the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All from the word of God. So the third ingredient might be better to say not leadership, but leadership by the word of God. Okay? Because a lot of churches that have leadership. But it's not by the word of God. It's by the charisma or the wisdom or the power of the leader, not by the word of God. Paul sums it. Let's go to Acts 20. He sums it up very beautifully in Acts 20. Remember, this is one of the ingredients necessary for a church to fulfill their calling to exalt Christ and make him known. Acts 20, we'll do 24 through 27. We're towards the end of Paul's ministry. He's called the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. To come together, and yes, there were multiple elders in the church at Ephesus, as seen in, in most churches in Acts. He calls them together to sort of give them his final talk. And he says in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I, If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about 
proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? Very important. Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That was his ministry. That was his gift. That was the gift God gave to the church was Paul in the ministry of the word to declare in the whole counsel of God. Now, we see the effects of this sort of ministry, this sort of, yeah, the ministry of the word of God to the church back in Ephesians 2 as we continue on in verse 12, 13, 14. So when you have biblical leadership, leadership by the word of God, this is the outcome. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now we could spend weeks on those phrases. Two words I want us to pick up on. Equips and edifies. Or equips and builds. This could be a different translation. Perfects and edifies. Uh, let me talk quickly about each one of those. Equip. He says to equip the saints. To equip the saints. To equip is to perfect something that is inadequate. To perfect something that is inadequate. So what what's what do you have? What do I have to give you to perfect you to to make you adequate for your calling? This is all I got. The word of God. That's it. Right? So that word equip or perfect is used to in relation to mending nets, refitting ships, to set a bone out of joint, to furnish a house. So you and I, we come as sinners like holy nets and not H holy, but, you know, full of holes. Busted up ships, joints out of socket, empty houses. And what do we need? Perfection. Not 100% out of 100%, but being made adequate for the work that we've been called to. To equip the saints and the ministry of the word of God through biblical leadership makes you, you, the inadequate, adequate and me as well. It makes us the useless, useful. And this is exactly what Paul was telling Timothy, right? In second Timothy, I'll read it to you. Just hang tight. When he discusses the importance of the word of God in Timothy's ministry, he tells him why. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, Pastor Timothy, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We need the ministry of the word. It is the work of as we know them today, pastors and elders. Now, that's equip. What about edify? We've got to move, move on here. Edify, or to build up, your translation may say. I like the two E's, equipped, edified. I'm kind of bringing two translations together there, and that's okay. So is this is, is to be built up, not what God is doing. In Ephesians 2, we saw it last week, is, is edification or being built up not the goal of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is he building? A temple for himself. And what is the temple made of? You. You. Saints. You are the bricks of the temple. And in the ministry of the word, you are being built into the temple, a dwelling place of God, strengthening each stone and also the whole structure in itself. You can go back and read Ephesians 2, the last half of it, as a reminder for that sake. But transitioning back into 13 and 14, Paul gives more detail of what that looks like, the building up of the body of Christ. He says, look at verse 13 and 14. 
until, so we're going to do this work until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So notice the unity of, of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Where? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're going to come back to 14 here in a little bit. But let's move on. Let's get our last two ingredients that we need for a church to fulfill their calling of exalting God and making him known. And it starts in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Here's our final two ingredients. Rather, speaking the truth in Love, truth in love, truth and love. These are our fourth and fifth ingredients necessary. So we just spent a lot of time talking about the truth of God in the ministry of the word, right? That's not really what I want to get at right now. Because there are many people all across this world that are sitting under the truth this morning but they will go home and not live out the truth. It is one thing to hear it, and it's another thing to be affected by it and to live by it. The truth must come to us and then through us. So we're talking in the context of unity. First, it must impact us and then leave our lips to serve others. Now, here's where it gets difficult, because normally when we're speaking truth, it could hurt. It could feel pushy. It could feel invasive. It could feel, how dare you? But when we speak the truth, it might come out in a couple ways. It might come out in correction and, and, and false doctrine. And bad teaching or understanding of the word. You're having a conversation with your brother in Christ and he says something about the, the, the Trinity and you're like, hey, let's back up a second. And you might need to correct your brother because of their misunderstanding of uh, the nature of the Godhead three in one. And it's necessary because it's the truth. It's the ministry of the word. See, the ministry of the word comes out from here and then should be operating within to one another. Don't leave it up to what people like to call the professionals. If you leave it up to me, it won't be pretty worthless. If I'm supposed to be doing this everywhere, every which way for everybody. We'll see that here more in a minute. But another way speaking truth might come out is not just correcting a false understanding of truth or the word, but in correcting sin or sinful living. But it's always, either or, when truth is spoken, you must take pains to make sure it is God's truth and not your truth. His word not your opinion. Love. Now, when you think love, think selflessness, sacrificial, considering others more significant than yourself. Think about what you're called to in marriage. Those same principles apply to how you ought to treat everyone. Sacrificial, selfless, Considering others more significant than yourself, Jesus says, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. That's love. Love always puts others first. When it means saying something difficult to your brother, like we already said, and you might be thinking, he may hate me for telling him this, but I love him, so I need to speak truth in love to him. Or it might be, She's going to be embarrassed when I go over to her house and help her with her laundry. She just had surgery. She can't do it. But I'm going to lovingly go to her and help her. 
You see, truth and love, truth and love, mixed, when you get it all mixed up, it's the mortar to the temple. It's the thing that fills in the cracks of all the bricks. It's the thing that holds it all together. The opposite of truth and love, lies, falsehood, selfishness, cracks it up and tears it down. So let us seek truth and love. Now, verse 16, and this is where we're concluding here. Verse 16 shows us what these ingredients produce. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that's a mouthful. That's a, that is a beautiful verse, but it, 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 it could be a little confusing. So I'm going to give you four words that come from that verse to help you see the characteristics of a church that has been made by these five ingredients. Unified, stable, growing, and working. That's unified, stable, growing, and working. Now one sentence for each of these. Unified, that's obvious, right? Together, one, of one mind, of one accord, of one of spirit, of one hope. We go back to Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6, right? That's that's the unity being brought together by Christ for one purpose. Stable. Now this one might not seem so obvious, but we're going to get help from verse 14 as well. So notice in 16, it says, from whom the whole body joined and Held together. Remember that that out of joint bone, that out of joint socket. That's that out of joint socket that's not being held together by those ligaments. Isn't going to work. Isn't going to help the body. It's actually going to hinder the body, right? So when the body is stable and held into joint, go back up to 13. We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Let me give you a, a, a sports analogy. I don't do these very often. I hold back, actually. Um, you ever seen – well, you don't see it, but you see a guy, a football or basketball, doesn't matter, and they get their shoulder knocked out of place or anything. They have an injury, and they go and they go try to take that next play, and where they go – Right to the ground. There's no way that they're going to be able to block that lineman with that shoulder out of place. And they're just going to be tossed to and fro. Like a 350-pound man with a busted-up shoulder, the 250-pound guy's going to throw him on the ground. We as a body have to be stable, held together for the sake that we're not being tossed to and fro. We turn on the TV and hear the nonsense of the prosperity gospel that's saying that God's going to give you health, wealth, and all this. Or that Jesus did not have to die and shed his blood for the sake of your sin, that you might be removed from the wrath and anger of God. You'll hear these things in this world. You'll hear these things from Christians. And you need to be built up, held together by the ministry of the word, unified in Christ, so that when you hear it, you're like, you can't move me. I know that's wrong. And look where it comes from. By every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, we must be stable. Now, that was more than one sentence on stable, but you get it. Number three, growing or maturing. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual growth and maturity. And what does it look like? It looks like Christ. A church that is growing and maturing is a church that looks like Christ. Growing up into the head. A church that isn't growing ought to be a very very scared church and I again I mean maturity and you can use that you can use this uh, warning in Hebrews and I'll read it to you 
Because when a church is gathered together and we're assuming the word of God is, is present, but then no fruit comes of it. Here's what, here's what the writer of Hebrews says when someone is taking in but not producing. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing. But if that field that's taking in the rain bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. If you're not growing, you're going. And you're going in the wrong way. That is a characteristic of a church that is unified in love and peace for the sake of exalting Christ and making Him known. And finally, a biblical church is a working church. Verse 16, when each part is working properly. Again, man, I got that bum leg. Without, it's going to hinder you. Isn't that the point of being equipped and edified? So that you can work? So that you will be adequate participating in the building up of the body of Christ? See, it's not, it's not just the person up here preaching and teaching and has got the name pastor. It's the body of Christ that works. That we build one another up. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Okay? We cannot view Christianity like going out to eat. Why do you love to go out to eat? Because you ain't got to cook. You ain't got to clean. And if you don't like the service, you don't ever have to go back. See what I'm getting at? That's not what we should be doing here. God has given you a spirit to do the work needed. Serving, participating, loving. He's gifted you all. By his grace, with an ability to carry out a task for the body. You may be a nose, an arm, or an eye, or whatever. So, let me read paragraph two. And then a, a one passage out of Colossians, and we'll be done. If you've got your bulletin, look at the back of, at the back of it. Paragraph 2, we shall strive by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in the unity of love for the advancement of this church. Now understand that that doesn't mean that we, we care so much about Ozark's Bible Church that we want it to flourish and be great. No, 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 no. That it grows up into Christ, the head, exalts him and makes him known. As we advance biblically, Christ is glorified and made known. You understand? We shall strive... Now, I could take, just let's just read it. We shall strive to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. Where are all, where are all those found? And how are all those sustained? By the word of God, okay? By the truth. To cheerfully, to, to contribute cheerfully and regularly. What's that sound like? Love. Selflessness. To contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministries, the expenses of the church, to help those in need, and the spread of the gospel into all nations. Our church, if it advances biblically, we are a part of the Great Commission spreading the gospel to all the nations. Right? That is what we want to do. We don't want to just grow ourselves up, but to grow up the kingdom of God with the rest of the expressions of the body of Christ throughout the, the rest of the world in the advancement of what we'll look at next week, the kingdom of our Savior. That's the point of paragraph two. And we cannot forget, as we close with Colossians 1, that there is one purpose behind all of this. Behind church, working, covenants, all that stuff. 
You, if you forget about the head, it's all vain. If you forget about Christ, it is worthless. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to leave today and say, oh, I'm so glad I go to a church where we care about Christ. I want you to care about Christ. I want it to be a burden on your heart for the glory and exaltation of Christ because we are all members, diverse of one body. Colossians 1 verse 17 And he is the head of the body. I'm sorry. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that everything he might be preeminent. From in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, being tossed to and fro from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that has which been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, and of which I now have proclaimed to you. So let us, for the sake, the glory of Christ, be unified in love for the advancement of this local assembly, for the advancement of the kingdom of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, take your word. And may fruit come abounding. May your mercy and grace go forth from us today. That you as our head will be exalted above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.